Our epistle for this Trinity Sunday and our text for this morning is from Romans chapter 5. Here once again, God's holy word. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word. And by the spirit who has been poured out into our hearts, we ask you to guide us into truth. Help us to understand and hear and make proper application. Deliver us from all error. Deliver us from all distractions. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. Shoji Morimoto is a 38-year-old Japanese entrepreneur. He's known as the do-nothing rent-a-man. He makes his living in Japan by offering himself as an on-demand companion to accompany people who would otherwise be alone. So for 10,000 yen or about $85 an hour, people rent Morimoto so that they don't have to bear the stigma of sitting in a restaurant eating a meal by themselves or in order to save face at social functions where a significant other is expected, they rent Morimoto to join them at those functions. Uh, there's a small industry, he's not the only one doing this, there's a small industry in Japan of rental friends, but Morimoto is special in this way. He's known as the do-nothing rent-a-man because his service comes with this unique feature. He just sits there. He doesn't do anything else. He won't initiate conversation. He won't crack jokes. He will respond to you by nodding politely, maybe with a grunt or maybe with a polite chuckle if you engage him, but otherwise he won't break the silence. He is the companion who presents a warm body to fill a chair for the duration of your need, and that's all. And his schedule stays booked. He makes his living doing this. The people who rent his time want the appearance of a friend without any of the actual friendship, without any of the actual human engagement or interaction. Now, there's some uncomfortable humor in that, but there's also something profoundly sad about a culture where companionship is so increasingly rare, so seemingly unattainable that it would be normal to rent a friend and where you might especially want an inert friend, a person you don't care to know and someone who doesn't care to know you. That concept is so alien to us because within the church, within the congregation, with this, within this congregation especially, we are just swimming in friends. We've got more friends than we know what to do with. Our biggest problem is that there aren't enough days in the week or hours in the day to get together with everybody that we want to spend time with. We are spoiled within the church. And so it may be difficult for us to imagine what it's like to be outside the body of Christ. We're if you're not part of the body of Christ, who do you call? Who do you depend on? Who do you turn to for help? Well, it's a truth that modern civilizations are experiencing a great plague of loneliness. Outside of the community, outside the fellowship of the church, people 
are lonely. Now, you may think of some exceptions to that. There are some non-Christians who have tight family connections. There are some people who have developed deep friendships over the years. Those exist. I'm not denying that. But this is becoming more and more rare, especially among the younger generations who are growing up in an impersonal, lonely, isolated age. They have substituted real friendships with online connections, internet communities, but these are networks full of strangers. Uh, you, you've never met them in, in, in person. People who present themselves through carefully curated, heavily edited images. And if you spend enough time in that virtual space and uh, you, that, those are the connections you make, then live interactions with flesh and blood people become scary. It becomes a very anxious prospect to enter into live interactions with people because you can't go back and edit what you say. You can't delete anything that you say. You can't control the lighting or the sound. You can't Photoshop reality and you can't do a retake. And so because reality is so fraught with all of these variables, uh, the tendency is to retreat further into isolation. Societies develop these antisocial, misanthropic, withdrawn social habits because we always become like the God we worship. You always become like the God you worship. And the God of the American civil religion, the God of the pagans, the God of the secularists is static, he is lifeless, impersonal, and ultimately powerless. He doesn't really do anything that matters. He can't make anything happen. He can't prevent anything from happening. All he does is wring his hands in the, in the quiet halls of heaven, and uh, he, he listens to your thoughts and prayers, but can't actually act on anything. He doesn't communicate. He doesn't respond. The God of the secularists and the God of the pagans serves the same function as Mr. Morimoto. He shows up he fills a chair, he gets his name on your money, he gets his name in your pledge, uh, that's all he does, but, but beyond that, you're on your own. He is the do-nothing rent-a-god. If your concept of God is an impersonal, isolated, unitarian monad, your life is going to reflect all of that. If, however, your God is a loving, sacrificial joyful community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your whole life is transformed by the character of this personal, powerful, living, active God. And as, as that eventually works its way out, the whole society comes to mirror the life of the Trinity. It's no accident that Trinitarian cultures, at their best, function differently than Unitarian and polytheistic societies. And yet, as formative, as profound, as unique the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is, it seems that this is a core teaching of the church that's just easily disregarded, forgotten, marginalized. It's often under, uh, uh, thought of, uh, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, it's often assumed to be too confusing, too esoteric, too arcane even to be bothered with. And by the way, we've all known some nice Mormons, we've known some nice Jews, we've known some nice oneness Pentecostals, and none of them are Trinitarian, but why does it matter anyway? They all like 
Jesus, or at least the Jews may think, you know, he's a, he was an okay teacher, or maybe not. But why does it matter anyway? We, we think the Trinity just doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference. We try to explain it away or oversimplify it with Sunday school illustrations, which are, by the way, all heresies. The water, the apple, the, the tree, all of these, all of these are all heresies. And if you need a full treatment of that, um, talk to Eric, uh, I'm sorry, Adam and Christian Holter. Uh, they'll, they'll get you sorted out, I'm sure. I think there's a video floating around and they will help you uh, relieve you of your heresies. Uh, but I, I'm thankful for this day on the church calendar, Trinity Sunday, where at least once a year, we come back to reflect on and rejoice in this critical Christian truth, which is at the core. The Trinity is at the core of Orthodox Christianity. It is vital that we get this right. All cults and all heretics begin with a reformulation of the Trinity. You start there, and if you get God wrong, if you misunderstand who he is, you get everything else wrong. You can't begin with a warped concept of God and think that you're going to land on a correct understanding of the gospel, of righteousness, of, of redemption, of forgiveness, of worship, of church, of human relationships. Everything else is going to be twisted. It gets more and more out of line the further on you go. The doctrine of the Trinity defines the God we worship, who is the living God of creation, the God of Abraham and Moses, the God who took on flesh. It, the doctrine of the Trinity differentiates that God from the God of the Muslims, from the God of the Jews and all other cults. We do not worship the same God as the Jews. The God of creation took on human flesh. The God of creation suffered the pain and anguish of the cross. The God of creation was buried. The God of creation rose again on the third day and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. That is the God that we worship. That's not the God that the Jews worship. Don't ever think or say, oh, we worship the same God just in a different way. That is absolutely false. We are Trinitarians. We worship the Lord Jesus who is the second person of the Trinity. More than that, our God is not an impersonal force. Our God is not a solitary cosmic despot. A Unitarian God could not be eternally loving and gracious. The only thing a, a Unitarian God can love for eternity is himself. It's the only thing he could love. A Unitarian God's defining characteristics then are his solitude and his egotism. On the other hand, the Trinitarian God eternally loves and is loved by the other persons of the Trinity. He's not an egotist who glorifies and worships himself, but each person of the Trinity pours himself out in love and adoration and exchanges of glory for the others. And so when we speak of God doing things for his own glory, this is what we're talking about. We're not saying that God soaks up adoration adulation and praise for himself, and it just, it, it just inflates his ego. No, the father loves and approves of and takes delight in the son. The son delights in and obeys and serves the father. The Holy Spirit glorifies the father and the son. That's what we mean by God doing things for his own glory and, 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 uh, and, and God getting the glory. It's we're talking about these relationships between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
The Trinity is the God who engages in a complex relationship between three persons. Now, not three gods, one God in three persons. It is a relationship between God and God and God. He is the God who has begotten God. He is the God who sends God. He is the God who is sent by God. The Father is the God who loves God the Son. Jesus is the God who obeys God the Father and offers himself to God. The Holy Spirit is the God who glorifies God. The triune God is the God who converses with, serves, and honors God. He is the God who relates to God. And all of this, he's demonstrating for us how we are to worship, honor, love, serve, offer ourselves to God. He doesn't simply tell us to do things without showing us how it's done. And he demonstrates it through the relationships between the members of the Trinity. Again, we become like the God we worship. And if our God is an egotistical monad, like Allah, for example, then we come to value what he values. And then power and subjugation become our defining characteristics. If our God is impersonal, if he's alone, if he's solitary, we become the same and we value the same. So today I want to equip you with a basic defense of the Trinity and then to demonstrate why it matters. How are we shaped by this truth? First, who is God? That's an important question and it's important we get this right. The Christian church throughout her history has articulated the answer this way. There is only one living and true God, infinite in being and perfection, who works out all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and most righteous will for his own glory, as I just defined, the glory of the persons of the Trinity, and who exists eternally in a community of three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God is one in essence and nature, but inseparably and without confusion distinguished as three persons who are co-substantial. What we mean by that is that they are all divine. There's not one is more God or more divine than the other. They are all divine, they are co-equal, they are co-eternal. The Father sends the Son, who is eternally begotten by the Father. John 1.14, we read, John tells us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The son is always the son in relationship to the father. John 20, 21, Jesus said, as the father has sent me, I also send you. So, so the son did not become the son at the incarnation. Uh, that is not a, a new formulation with the work of Jesus. Jesus is eternally the son. He's eternally as the second person of the Trinity relating to the father as the father. The father is eternally the father as he relates to the son and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and the son. The Lord Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 26, when the helper comes, 
whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So the Lord Jesus says, I'm sending you the spirit. My Father is sending you the spirit. I'm sending you my Father's spirit. The spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Father is God. The Son, Jesus Christ, is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, you might have had a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness on your front doorstep trying to tell you that Jesus never said he was God, the Bible never says Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit and the Father are the same, one and the same, and, and there's no differentiation between them. Well, let me give you a few texts, and there are many, many, many texts that would help us here, but just a few so you know that I'm not making anything up here. The Father is God. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus directs us to pray to God as our Father, as, as his Father. God is our Father in heaven. In Galatians 1, Paul says that he was made an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So the Father is differentiated from the Son and the Father is God first. The Son, Jesus, is God. In John 1.1, 1, 1, this is where our minds always go, right? To, say the, to talk about the divinity, the deity of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of the Father, and Jesus is with God, and Jesus is God. In John 5.18, the Jews seek to kill Jesus because he said God was his Father, and they knew in their minds what he meant by that. He meant by that that he's the only begotten of the Father, that, that, that he is equal with God. And that's what they uh, accuse Jesus of, and Jesus doesn't disabuse them of that. He doesn't say, hold on, fellas, I'm not saying that. I'm not making myself equal with God. No, he, he doesn't counteract that. Uh, he receives their vitriol because that was the truth. In John 8, 58, Jesus says, most surely I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is using that uh, uh, name that Yahweh gave to Moses. And he's saying, that's who, that's who I am. I love Hebrews 1. In Hebrews 1, 6 through 8, God, the Father, directs the angels to worship Jesus, the Son, and to the Son, the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Father refers to the Son as God and says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. In Acts chapter 5, Peter is talking to Ananias. Remember, Ananias lied and kept back part of the proceeds of some land he'd sold that he was going to give to the church. And Paul, I'm sorry, Peter said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You haven't lied to men, but to God. There, Peter equated the Holy Spirit with God. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit of God. In many other places we could go to show the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Each person is God. However, they are not parts of God they are not different faces of God. The Father is not the Son. The Son never identifies himself as the Father. The Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. The three persons of the Trinity remain distinct. So these three persons are not masks that God wears to reveal himself in different ways and different times in history, nor are they three different ways of describing one God in various relationships. The scriptures show us the coexistence of each distinct 
member of the Trinity as they work together in concert. We see this from, from creation. God speaks of himself. He gives us a peek behind the curtain of what he's doing when he says, let us make man in our image. God shows himself as a plurality of persons. And throughout the work of creation, we see the whole Godhead working in concert to bring the cosmos and to bring the man into being. God speaks the heavens and earth into existence. The spirit broods over the face of the waters. Yahweh creates Adam and breathes into him his spirit of life, capital S. Later, we find out from the apostles John and Paul that it's the son who is the word of creation. By him, all things were made. We read in John 1, 3, all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. That's referencing the work of Jesus. So the whole Trinity was involved in creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They worked together to bring about the first creation. They continue to work together to bring about a new creation in the redemption of man. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul shows us the whole work of the whole Trinity in salvation. The Father chooses us in Christ. The Son redeems us by his blood. The Holy Spirit is the seal of our redemption. The whole Trinity is at work to secure our eternal life, just as the whole Trinity is present on the day of Christ's baptism. Matthew uh, shows us all the persons of the Godhead in the same place at the same time. With Jesus at the water, the Father speaking from heaven, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. In many other places, the scriptures refer to the Trinity as when we hear the praises of the angels giving honor to the thrice holy God. God is holy. He is holy. God is holy. Jesus commissions his church to take up her mission and to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul blesses the church using the Trinitarian formula in 2 Corinthians 13 14, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In many other places, we're directed to address our prayers to the Father in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. What does this mean for us? <clears throat> what does this change? What does this do? That the true God of creation has always existed in community informs us that we, created in his image, are also created to exist in community. God has never been alone. And so it is not good for man to be alone. Man was created to live with and fellowship with others, just as our creator has eternally. Through the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are saved by a heavenly community and placed into an earthly community. Our epistle reading for this Trinity Sunday from Romans 5 that I read a few minutes ago is just one of the many places in the scriptures that speak of the work of the whole Trinity in bringing us to faith in Jesus and fellowship with God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is a community effort. Let's uh, unpack this passage. Uh, let's go back to Romans chapter five and I'll read one or two verses at a time. Chapter five, verse one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Understand that we're jumping in the middle of a conversation here. Paul has been steaming ahead for four chapters already, and then we're jumping in in chapter five. But Paul is here assuring believers that on the basis of their faith in Jesus, God has made a declaration that we are justified. That is, we have been made right with God. We have reconciliation with him. In Christ, God has pardoned all of our sins and has accepted us as righteous in his sight. The Father views us through the work of his Son. When the Father looks at you, or the Father looks at me, he looks at me through the cross. He looks at me through the blood of Jesus that has covered and uh, has, has provided forgiveness for my sins. So in Christ, God has pardoned all of our sins and has accepted us as righteous in his sight. So Paul writes... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That word access there, we have access, that calls us to remember the temple where the priest would have a certain amount of access to the holy place most days of the year. Uh, and, and the high priest w- would go into the Holy of Holies just one time a year, but the majority of the people did not have access to the sanctuary. They didn't have access to the presence or the nearness of God. Yet now, because of the work of Jesus as our high priest, through him, we now have access You have access today. You have walked into the most holy place. You have presented yourself before the throne of God. You can walk in because you're with Jesus. You're in his presence. By faith, we approach God and we live in the atmosphere of his abiding presence and love. Not only do we walk in, we don't just dip in and dip out. We stand there in his grace and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We know that because of the work of Jesus, we and all creation and all nations are being set free from sin and death. And this is our sure and steadfast hope. Though presently, we're not free from all trouble. And for that, we have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse three, and not only... That, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Notice he says we glory in tribulation. We may not celebrate over our sufferings the way that we celebrate other sweeter providences, but we do find glory and rest and hope in the midst of our suffering. When we are suffering, our circumstances may not change. They may not ever change. In fact, our circumstances may get worse, but we are changed. We are transformed. And this happens through the steady, progressive work where God uses our sufferings to change us, to move us. He says, from tribulation to perseverance, from perseverance to character, from character to hope. And that hope is not obliterated by tribulations, but it's solidified. It's made more real and present and lasting. We always just want to get past the yucky parts and get on to the peace and the joy and the celebration and skip the tough parts. But that's not how it works. We get to the hope and joy and celebration and satisfaction through the tribulation and through the transformation of a character that produces a hope that does not leave us hanging. 
We're not left wanting and disappointed. Verse 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This sanctifying, transforming, regenerating work is done in us and through us by the Holy Spirit. That's his work. The work of the Holy Spirit is to bring us into his fellowship. And just as Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who drove him out to obey and please and serve the Father and glorify the Father, so that same Spirit has been poured out on us to drive us out to do the same and to bring us into this eternal, indwelling, interconnecting dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit has brought us into that community of the Trinity to be served by, to be loved by, and to love and glorify the other persons of the Trinity. And what Paul shows us here in Romans 5 is that this entire Godhead gives himself to us in a way that redeems our souls, gives us access into his life, imparting eternal life to us and bringing us into communion and fellowship where every person of the Trinity shares in every part of our lives. Even your tribulation and your sorrow are part of the process. And through these things, God brings glory to each person of the Trinity and he bestows sanctification and maturation to all of us. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he relates to your sorrows, your tribulations, walks in them with you and uses them for your good. What that means is this, very simply, the God who is never alone serves you in such a way that you are never alone. You are never left to yourself. You are never left to your own devices. Our unity with God and our unity with one another is grounded in God's relationship to God. The mutual relationships between God and God and God are the foundation of our life. From eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have shared in the fullness of life together in love and glory through their personal interactions with one another. And it's into this covenant of life that we are admitted. We have access into this life through the work of the Lord Jesus and in uniting us with his body here in the church. The communion of the Trinity is an inviting circle of fellowship that actively seeks to bring others into that friendship. The Trinity is not a distant clique that is sealed off. They don't need any more members. They're not accepting any applications removed from us. No, not at all. The fellowship of the Trinity is an ever-growing, inviting, welcoming fellowship that draws us into it, and we enjoy it. Jesus expresses this in John 15, 15. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And so by sharing the word of his Father, Jesus has opened up the communal life of the Trinity. Jesus calls us friends. Come with me, friend, into the dance and the fellowship of the triune God. He's carried us up by his spirit and placed us in the friendship of the Trinity. So if we're going to be godly, if we're going to be like the God we worship, that means we're also part of an 
uh, inviting circle of fellowship that actively seeks to bring others into our friendship and into the friendship of the Trinity. And what this means is that friends are not a luxury. Friends are not an accessory. Friends are not the bit players in the movie that you have playing in your head where you're the lead actor and all your friends are just uh, stand-ins and, and cameos. That's not, that's not it at all. Uh, friends are not a luxury. They are essential for you to live as God created you to live. Friends are critical for your growth and your sanctification. You must have good friends and deliberately pursue friendships. The God who isn't alone has not created us in his image so that we could just be alone. Despite everything in our society that's driving us apart and driving us inward and driving us away from people. Everything that says friends are nice, I guess, but not essential, rent, rent somebody if you need a warm body, we must pull in the opposite direction. Just as a Unitarian God would be this weird, eternally isolated egotist, so are people who deliberately isolate themselves. They, they pick up all kinds of oddities, all kinds of strange habits and strange ideas and beliefs because they're their only teacher. They're the only comparison that they have. Friends, however, friends give us multiple perspectives on life and, and deliver us from idolatrous self-absorption. Friends have gifts and talents that I need for my blessing and success. I can't do everything well. I do one or two things okay, maybe, passable. I can only do a few things. I am weak and I am impoverished without your strengths. God has gifted you and has strengthened you in ways that I need. And you all need each other. He has deliberately weakened you. He's twisted your, twisted your ankle. He's twisted your leg just as he twisted Israel's leg. In certain ways, you've got to limp because you have people who need to hold you up. And there are people who have gifts that you don't have. That's deliberate. The Trinitarian God equips his church with a wide diversity of gifts so that everyone needs each other. We are impoverished without each other's strengths. Uh, and we need each other. Not everybody's the eye, not everybody's the foot, not everybody's the hand, just as the father is not the son, the son is not the spirit. The whole body to be healthy and function together must, must operate with mutual esteem and adoration, just like the members of the Trinity. Not only that, but friends give us an opportunity to practice forgiving and being forgiven, which helps us to live out the gospel. It helps us to live out the grace of God together by having opportunities to forgive and to be forgiven. If you never want to be hurt, if you never want to be offended again, if you never want to be injured in any way, it's super easy, super, super easy. You go in a room and shut the door and turn off your phone, and for the rest of your short and miserable life, you won't ever be offended again, you won't ever be upset by anybody, ever. That's the way to never be offended. Or try this, come out of your room, get your hands dirty, skin your knees, and learn with other people what the triune God has done for us by practicing forgiving and being forgiven. Love your neighbor is an empty concept if you never leave the house. In order to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, I've got to know somebody who's rejoicing, and I must know somebody who's weeping. You need more people to obey the Lord Jesus. Ecclesiastes 4 says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. 
But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That passage from Ecclesiastes always reminds me of that essay on friendship that C.S. Lewis wrote in The Four Loves. You know that C.S. Lewis was a member of a group known as the Inklings that was made up of famous writers. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was a member of the Inklings. So was Charles Williams. Charles Williams wrote many plays and novels and poems before his early and unexpected death. And Lewis reflects on how the death of Charles Williams impacted his whole circle of friends. I want to read just a paragraph from that essay. Lewis writes, in each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Ronald was Tolkien. He says, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in his own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim and Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. He underscores a critical truth there. Why do we have each other? Why do we have the church? Why do we have an earthly community of saints? Why don't you just get a Bible and go find a cave somewhere in the mountains and sit there and wait for the end of the world? Why not? Because that's not godly. That's not what God is like. That doesn't reflect who he is. What is more heavenly? The rent-a-friend culture, the fake internet friend culture, or what Lewis describes here? I'm with Lewis. The only possible way to fully live the Christian life is with a merry band of Christian friends. And furthermore, to really know any individual person, it takes a community. I love how he articulates that, how he loved and knew Charles better through Ronald. He, if Charles told a joke, he enjoyed Ronald's laughter at that joke and got something more out of Ronald's reaction to Charles than he could get on his own. And if that's true of Charles Williams, how much more true is it of Jesus? I know Jesus better because I get to share him in a community. I know Jesus better because I get to see your worship and praise and love and pursuit of pleasing Jesus. I get to know him better because of you and how you serve him. I get to see Jesus and share him and be known by him, not in isolation, but because I get to do this in a great group of friends, because I know Jesus in community. So then, we must open ourselves up to receiving overtures of friendship, to be taken in by the fellowship of the triune God, and to be taken in by his people. We must all pursue, deliberately initiate opportunities for building friendship. 
The Trinity reveals that you and I have been saved by a communal God. All three persons are engaged in our redemption, our justification, our sanctification. We are saved by a community. We are being saved in a community, the church, and being brought into an even greater community of all the saints of all the ages. The church is the only earthly community that is built specifically for this purpose, and it's where you belong. It's why the triune God created you in order for you to be in the fellowship and the company of the Trinity through the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Father, that you have called us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is our seal and who binds us with strong cords of love into the fellowship and the dance of the Trinity. We pray that we would always be mindful to reflect that through our relationships on earth and in your body, the church. Father, we praise you and give you thanks for all things in Jesus' name. Amen.